1: In recent news, this program has learned that Virgin Airlines will now officially allow cell phone conversations on airplanes. Along those same lines, here are some other things that they're now allowing on airplanes. Portable chalkboard fingernail sets available for purchase from a flight attendant, complimentary in-flight root canal, loud crouton chewing, road maps folded incorrectly in the seat pocket in front of you, mandatory modern country karaoke. Specially engineered cups with straws and an ever replenishing tiny amount of liquid at the bottom to make that loud sucking sound for up to four hours. Nose whistling. Your seatmate improperly using the word literally for literally the entire flight. (laughs) A live performance of Menopause the Musical. An in-flight personal PowerPoint by your mother, featuring your brother's accomplishments with a live Q&A about what you're planning to do with your art history degree. <laughs> and of course, Killer Snakes. In order to survive these new rules, passengers should utilize the following recipe, half a Xanax, one mini bottle of vodka, and something that's both utterly calming and a mild irritant. It's, it's, live, live! the beautiful Alberta Rose Theatre in Portland, Oregon, it's Live Wire, the radio show that's talking on its cell phone on an airplane right now. Tonight, film critic and cartoonist Mike Russell on Star Wars, Daily Show co-creator Liz Winstead, and music from Casey Anderson and the Honkies. That's tonight on Live Wire Radio. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm your host, Courtney Haumeister, and you also have comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to. Poet Scott Poole with What I Learned Tonight, wherein Scott sits in our audience, and in just one hour, the amount of time it took Walt Whitman to compare his chest hair to leaves of grass, then decide he overused that metaphor, and then change it to exotic gray man forest... He writes a poem that encompasses all the lessons he's learned during the show. And of course, music from our house band, Ralph Huntley and the Mutton Chops. Thanks, Ralph. As I mentioned earlier, we have cartoonist and film reviewer Mike Russell on the show tonight. He'll be reading an essay about his somewhat complicated relationship with Star Wars. And we also have Liz Winstead on the show. She'll be reading from, yes? Her recent book of essays, Liz Free or Die. But before we get to all that, I actually have something that I would like to work through, if I may use you listeners as a sounding board. A few weeks ago, I was asked to be the commencement speaker at a local high school. (laughs) Just take that in. (laughs) I was very flattered, and I accepted right away, not giving them a chance to Google me and take it back. And my first thought after accepting was, oh no... Now I'm going to have to pretend to have hope. But I've actually, I've had a little bit of acting training, so I'm pretty sure that I can pull that part off. But the bigger problem, of course, is what do you say to a group of high school seniors? Especially now with the economy as it is and the country as divided as it is and ice caps melting and the Mayan calendar situation and Social Security depleted and unemployment at 8.2%. Do I just get up there and say... Man. We are super super sorry you guys and then just and then just walk off stage. Maybe drop the mic. Um But that's, you know, they're not getting their money's worth in that situation. But I I've, I've spent some time trying to come up with some advice, but none of it seems exactly right. I've thought of things like um You know, college is a great time to discover who and what you want to be. It is also the only time in your life when you're able to get jello shots for free if you show enough cleavage, so take advantage of it. Um, You may gain a little weight in college, but it takes the sting out of it a little if you think of it as building up a protective outer layer like a tortoise. You'll need that moving forward. Um, Don't get a degree in mid-19th century agrarian studies. Uh, Your father was right when he said there was nothing you could do with it, and the only truly useful thing you'll learn is what the word agrarian means. (laughs) In fact, just make sure that you take classes whose subject matter will be interesting at a dinner party with your spouse's work friends when you're 35, because that may be the only time you'll ever use your degree. (laughs) Uh, College is a magical time in your life, largely because... Any sexual experiences you have during your freshman and sophomore years are so off-the-charts terrible that none of them count toward the ultimate partner number you're going to have to trade with your future spouse. (laughs) Um, and here's another one. After college, you're going to go through a period in life when you wonder what the point of it all is and whether or not you've made a huge mistake. That period is known as adulthood. (laughs) Another piece of advice, don't get a duvet cover for your bed. The only time the corners of the duvet and the corners of the comforter will ever line up is the very first time you put the comforter in. And after that, you'll be constantly fighting to keep the comforter from bunching up on one side of the duvet. And you can get those little metal clips that supposedly keep them in place, but inevitably, you'll just end up whacking yourself in the head, so you'll take them off. And then, the duvet bunching problem will just be another issue to add to the list of items that plague you at 2 o'clock in the morning as you lie on the side of the bed that the comforter isn't on. (laughs) these things will not make for an inspiring send off Um, and and so I'm thinking maybe I'll just keep it simple be kind whenever possible because you will always regret the times when you were not never compare your life to anyone else's unless you want to know what true unhappiness is and for God's sake floss congratulations graduates and P.S. we really are sorry about the whole social security thing think my speech is written. It's done. Tonight's musical guest, Casey Anderson, thinks it's important that you know the following three things. He's never seen Titanic, he will gladly teach you to play backgammon, and he will never set foot in an Arby's or in Pierre, South Dakota. So an Arby's in Pierre, South Dakota, completely out of the question. Also important, Pace Magazine called the Seattle-based band leader a literate working man's poet, and along with his band The Honkies and their unpigeon sound, he toured with Steve Earle, Dave Alvin, and Peter Case. This summer, the band is touring with Counting Crows and Jason Isbell and supporting their own new album, Let the Bloody Moon Rise. Please welcome Casey Anderson and The Honkies to Livewire. <laughs>
2: traffic on the bridge and it's moving like your heavy eyes. Did you pick up the habit? Heard you did. Hey kid, imagine my surprise. Nobody told you you'd be worried like this if all the this, Open everything would be okay. How you shaking when you're making that list of the people you miss? Don't you start to Shut out the light, it's just a picture of your face. Does it fade away? Does it fade away? Does it fade? is a second hand watch and a matchbook where I wrote your name. Sure by now I'm just a dream you forgot another number you lost the melody you learned to play while you fade away
1: The Honkies. So we've actually been following uh, Mr. Anderson on the Twitters for some time now, and we've, we've enjoyed his digital musing so much that tonight we've actually asked him to read some of them, nice and slow-like, so we can take them all in, uh, in perhaps the style of, say, a 1960s beat poet. Uh, so now we present... Casey Anderson and the Mutton Chops in Tweet Poetry.
3: Can you imagine if Obama had an affair with Christina Applegate and we got to call it (laughs) Applegate-gate? Or if he bugged her front gate and we got to call it Applegate-gate-gate? I'm at Starbucks, and my hand to God, I just watched a little person try four times to order a 12-ounce latte, but the cashier made her say tall. I just cut the tops off two sticks of deodorant and glued them to my armpits. Showering is over. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou make me sweaty and uncomfortable, and I just want to nap until this passes. (laughs) Sublime has to be the least apt band name in history. All couples should be as aesthetically well-matched as Danny DeVito and Rhea Perlman. I have severe hypochondria, self-diagnosed. If part of being your man is having to ever hear you perform your songs, then no, Cheryl Crow, I am not strong enough. I just told a dog it would never get to heaven. Yesterday I met dogs named Gainsborough and Amelie and a tattooed nine-year-old. You are trying too hard, Portland. If Barack Obama really wants to get re-elected, he should just pretend to be a television show that's going to be canceled.
1: That was Casey Anderson in Tweet Poetry. Casey will be back later in the show with another song. Thanks, Casey. (laughs) Thanks, Mutton Shops. You're listening to Livewire, and if you just tuned in, that's unfortunate because you just missed an all-theremin Slayer cover band. But there's still more to come. Stay tuned for film critic Mike Russell, author Liz Winstead, more from Casey Anderson, and poet Scott Poole. We'll be right back. Every time. I, I
4: told him that, Janet. I did. Don't you think I told him that?
1: Yeah, I did. Hey, hey, guys.
5: I don't mean to interrupt, but do either of you know where the bathroom is?
4: Uh, sure thing, Samantha. Use the one in the master bedroom. Down that
6: hall. Last one on the left.
5: Okay, thanks. Hello?
6: Hi, uh, who's there?
5: Oh, sorry. Just was looking for the bathroom. Sam, is that you? Dave? Yeah, it's me.
6: Get in here. Close the
5: door. What's... What's going on? What's that?
6: Uh, it's broken. And it's... uh, I have no idea what it is. I I bumped into it when I walked in, and I think it's art or something.
5: Dang, this looks expensive. A sharper image expensive. Let's see. What's that you're holding?
6: It's a metal gear with a seagull frozen at mid-flight at the top.
5: I've got a pulley and some rustic twine connected to a sterling silver circuit board. What's by your feet?
6: Uh, A pile of chicken bones and the first five Doobie Brothers albums. (laughs) They fell out of the belly of this thing when I stumbled over it.
5: Are you sure it's broken? Wait. It has a belly? I broke
6: it and now it's broken.
5: Okay. What do you want me to do?
6: Can you lift that square sphere over there? Half of it's light, but strangely the other half is very heavy. Is that even possible? And it's filled with something.
5: Oh, it's probably water. Are those biscuits?
6: Yeah, this part shoots biscuits every couple of minutes. Oh, how are they? Oh, they're d- d- delicious. Well,
5: maybe there are instructions. I'm going to check the nightstand.
6: I think part of it is coated in some kind of biokinetic polymer. Is it shape-shifting?
5: Hey! Did you find something? Whoever lives here is watching Friday Night Lights. They've got first season on DVD. Oh, I love that show! Uh eh, the
6: whole situation with Landry at the end of season two just seemed a little bit forced.
5: Nah, they totally pull it together in season three. Huh, wait, what was I doing in this drawer?
6: Instructions! Oh,
5: right, right. Um, no instructions. Wait, who puts something like this in their bedroom anyway?
6: No idea. Oh, 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 oh there's some writing on the base here, B- below the engraving of Saint Peter shaking hands with Daphne Coleman. Oh. Can you read
5: it? Oh, sure. It reads a Carlton Spivak tungsten-based carrot
6: monkey. Okay, that's that's nothing. Yeah. But oh, this this thing this this has to be something.
5: Well, you're right. Everything is something. Um... Okay. What what?
6: What's it doing? It did this when I bumped into it. It's going to make these sounds, and then it's going to play five seconds of a Sam Cooke song, and then it's going to fill the bedroom with an Irish sense of dread, and I'm going to forget last week.
2: Darling,
5: you... Oh, holy moly. I am full of feelings of dread. Oh, and last week
6: totally gone
5: oh someone's gonna come in here and catch us
6: you know what i don't care okay if someone asks i'm just gonna say yeah i broke it and so what i broke your steampunk avian biscuit shooting hadron collider
5: oh it's a hadron collider we are leaving
6: grab the biscuits
5: okay fine oh is there any jelly
6: there's no time to wait for the jelly cycle let's get out of here
1: That was Andrew Harris, Sean McGrath, and Tricia Ferguson with sound effects by David Ian. Our next guest is a writer and cartoonist whose work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, In Focus Magazine, and the Boston Globe. As a writer, he's reviewed movies, books, DVDs, and he's published interviews with people like Joss Whedon, Judd Apatow, and James L. Brooks. His most recent comic project is The Sabertooth Vampire. It's the story of a hapless vampire who has trouble terrorizing people, what with his teeth stuck in the ground and all. <laughs> Installments of the comic, which features innovative sound effects such as fwang, Scrunch, grobble, and gersplotch, I made that last one up, were recently published in Dark Horse Presents. He's here with a very personal tale of what the Star Wars 35th anniversary means to him. Please welcome Mike Russell to Livewire.
7: Hi, uh, my my name is Mike Russell, and I was a Star Wars addict. These days I'm just semi addicted. You never fully recover. Um, Fun fact. Uh, Star Wars turned 35 years old this month. I'm 42. I first caught my addiction on the big screen when I was seven. As with many movie lovers my age, George Lucas's space opera took up way too much of my brain's pop culture lobe for a very long time. Later, this made me kind of angry. Uh, but this year, on its 35th anniversary, my relationship with Star Wars is weirdly divisible into seven-year increments. I can drop in on myself at ages 7, 14, 21, 28, 35, and 42. This number 7 feels significant. It's like Shakespeare's Seven Ages of Man, only with dialogue so clunky it accidentally sounds like iambic pentameter. (laughs) Or maybe it's Michael Apted's 7-Up documentary series, but with Ewoks. Um, Before we continue, uh, has anybody here not seen Star Wars? Okay, Uh, here's what it's about. The characters are... A whiny hick and a poncho, a wizard who dresses like a homeless person, a pirate who dresses like an early 60s beetle, a Sasquatch, a beeping trash can, and the beeping trash can's gold-plated metrosexual frenemy. (laughs) In a single day, they go from hanging out in the desert to rescuing a princess with Cinnabons on her head to blowing up a giant metal moon that destroys planets. The Metal Moon is run by Van Helsing from the Hammer horror films and a tall guy with asthma who wears a Batman costume and a Samurai helmet and a 70s tape deck strapped to his chest. <laughs> Somehow, this story became an all-ages pop culture phenomenon. In the Internet age, uh, where all media exists simultaneously, it's easy to forget how a single movie could dominate the cultural conversation. But Star Wars ran in first-run theaters for a freaking year. You couldn't get away from it. Its triumph was all in its execution. You know, George Lucas distilled Heroes Quest mythology, Westerns, and Flash Gordon serials into one seamless story. It was funny, you know, the music was a cool riff on Wagnerian leitmotif, the editing was insanely tight, but most important to a seven-year-old, Star Wars built this weird, messy, lived-in world that seemed to continue outside the film frame. You could fill the edges in with your imagination. Yeah, I saw it three times. Movie concession, Red Vines, are my Madeline. At age seven, you're a sponge. I didn't just watch Star Wars. It went straight through my retinas. It carved itself onto my brain like a Van Halen logo on a high school desk. <laughs> its universe became my sandbox. Uh, this, this was cultishly reinforced by the fact that you could buy toys of the characters and make up your own stories for them in your living room while listening to the soundtrack double LP. The Rajneeshis couldn't have done a better job imprinting. <laughs> A friend of mine, uh, who's actually here tonight, uh, the cartoonist and classical mythology nerd Dylan McConus, accuses... Yeah, she's great. uh, ...accuses Star Wars of, quote-unquote, wrecking the minds of an entire generation of young men. Now, I don't entirely agree. I mean, that seems like an awful lot to pin on a nerd filmmaker from Modesto. And, you know, let's be honest, Dylan. uh, Are the Ewoks any stupider than Athena springing fully formed from Zeus's forehead? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That said, I can sort of see Dylan's point. Uh, You know, if creativity involves free associating all the random data you collect over the years, and you decide as a kid to collect most of that data from a single story, you know, that in Raiders of the Lost Ark, then yeah, (laughs) you might have a problem. By the time I was 14, though, uh, the third and then final Star Wars film, Return of the Jedi, had been out for a year. I was hitting adolescence and getting into sports and theater and writing and girls... And even then, I knew the series had peaked with Empire Strikes Back. I mean, I mean, L- Lucas took an admirable risk on Empire. He made a sequel with a cliffhanger ending about failure and bad parenting with a Muppet, using his own money. I mean, Han Solo macked on Princess Leia, the Millennium Falcon was like a busted hot rod. It ruled! On the other hand, Return of the Jedi ended the series with teddy bears overthrowing trained commando units. So I was, you know, poised to put the series behind me and then I turned 21. Now, this was 1991. George Lucas finally realized that Willow and Howard the Duck weren't going to help him pay his employees, uh, so he uh, authorized the publication of new novels that officially continued the story of Star Wars. Uh, this launched an official, quote-unquote, expanded universe of books and games, and you know, twirling wall lollipop holders, and you know, thus began Lucasfilm's long, profitable process of caulking in all the story gaps my imagination used to fill. Uh, it was a genius marketing move. I mean, George Lucas chose to fill in the Star Wars blanks at a time when the target audience's lives were starting to fill up with real-world blanks. Uh, me, for example. You know, I was about to graduate from college. I, I was losing my faith, my belief system, my, my structured schedule, and my college girlfriend. But now I could clutch all new Star Wars fetish objects like a security blanket while I tried to sort out my life. <laughs> it was a balm and a crutch and a silly, expensive habit. By age 28 in 1998, this reigniting of my geek interest was double reinforced by the explosion of the World Wide Web. I built a career in the newspaper business, which at the time was trying to brush off the World Wide Web like a pesky gnat. Hindsight. Uh, <laughs> meanwhile, I devoted embarrassing amounts of time to reading online discussions about a little film called The Phantom Menace, which was coming out in a year. It was an exciting, uh, hopeful time. And then I saw The Phantom Menace, and on that evening, I became a man. (laughs) The movie to which I'd devoted years, years of anticipation, turned out to be sort of shockingly dull. It overexplained. It turned my childhood mythology into C-Span, and it made me angry, head-clutchingly angry. Angry like a NASA engineer watching his space probe crash into Mars because someone forgot to carry the four. These days, of course, I realize that my entertainment is not a pioneering interplanetary science mission and that a movie is a pretty damn silly place to direct your rage. And, you know, let's be honest, I was angry at myself. You know, Phantom Menace had the exact opposite effect on me as the original films. It taught me not to place my faith in a single storyteller, much as you shouldn't place your faith in a single dogma. And it left me wondering about how much time and creativity I'd wasted. You know, was my pal Dylan right? You know, was I wrecked? Well, not exactly, or at least not entirely. A spell had been broken, and, you know, it kind of freed me up creatively. And, in fact, if The Phantom Menace hadn't pissed me off, I probably wouldn't be standing here now. That movie inspired me to post an online review that I'd written like I'd fled a cult. (laughs) Over a period of years, that one angry review actually led to a new paid career in film writing. Uh, Within five years, I was writing about movies and movie makers uh, professionally. More important, I leveraged my freelance position at The Oregonian into a side career drawing comic strips for them and telling my own stories." Uh, You know, in a weird way, my anger at the Phantom Menace forced me to expand my field of cultural interest. You know, to Lord of the Rings and Joss Whedon's Firefly. (laughs) George Lucas did not ruin my childhood as the internet is fond of shrieking. What George Lucas did was cater to a market as his core audience gained discretionary income. I bought in until he made so many creative choices I totally disagreed with that I finally became my own man in a cultural consumer sense. I was 35 in 2005 when the final Star Wars prequel, Revenge of the Sith, came out. Now, I like Sith alone among the prequels because it's very clearly the only one George Lucas actually wanted to make and because it's actually about something, you know, useless wars, the death of democracy, and the crumbling of the human body, all things that were frankly starting to worry me at 35. (laughs) Now I'm 42 and my worries are realities. Uh, George Lucas uh, produces a Clone Wars cartoon aimed at kids and I don't watch it. It's not made for me. You know, mostly I enjoy watching the original Star Wars icons get folded into kitschy new shapes by our web-fueled remix culture. And that, of course, is the beginning of middle-aged nostalgia. So where does it go from here? Let's suppose my life is the geek equivalent of Shakespeare's Seven Ages of Man. If so, what are my lean and slippered pantaloon and second childishness phases? You know, am I sitting in an old folks home at 70 ranting about Jawas and midichlorians? Oh hell, who am I kidding? Uh, after spending this much time sitting on my ass watching Star Wars, there's no way in hell I make it to 70. (laughs) Thank you.
4: You're listening to Livewire Radio. Support for this program comes from the Robin Schlotzky Charitable Trust, providing low-cost, low-rise jeans to teenage girls since 1991. From the Itzhak Perlman Academy of Guerrilla Warfare and Coyote Wrestling. From the Samuel G. and Rose M. McClellan Foundation, airlifting authentic Mexican-style burritos to the people of Indochina since 1200 B.C., from the Danny Hashimoto and Lorraine G. Schwibelschmidt School of Funk, online at we're going to turn this mother <laughs> From the Ted Nugent Bowhunting and Le Cordon Bleu Institute, ensuring the chefs of tomorrow are able to hunt 47 different animals while drunk since 1977. <laughs> From the Whitney Nurberger Fund, enriching the lives of captured aliens at Area 51 by providing them with magazines and Super Nintendo games, online at area50fun.net. From the Thomas and Martha Wayne Foundation, taking slow, ill-advised walks through crime-ridden alleys behind theaters in Gotham City since 1939. From actor Bob Balaban, online at that guy in those Christopher Guest movies. No... Not that one, the one who's not funny.org. And from listeners like you.
1: That was Sean McGrath. (laughs) Liz Winstead is a comedian, a writer, and the woman who co created The Daily Show and co founded Air America. She has appeared on HBO, she's been a regular contributor to MSNBC's Ed show, and and she's appeared in comedy clubs all across the country. And even though she's been performing the terrifying feat of stand-up comedy for over 20 years, it was her latest project that scared her the most, a series of autobiographical essays about her life. The book, Liz Free or Die, chronicles her life as the youngest in a Catholic family of five. Her love affairs with men and comedy, her ups and downs at Comedy Central, her complicated relationship with her parents and Fox News, and one particularly memorable battle she had with a movie screen that attempted to take her dress off. Here with a snippet of that book, please welcome Liz Winstead to LiveWire.
8: Why, thank you so much. It's always good to be here. It is true I'm the youngest of five kids from a very large Catholic family and one of those families where I was the youngest by six years, so I either wasn't supposed to be or I was supposed to be a boy. (laughs) I think Dad secretly loved going into the hospital as it gave him the freedom he never really had at home. (laughs) Full control of the TV remote. (laughs) He didn't have to sit through As the World Turns or The Guiding Light, my mom's stories, and only stories. He could surf and bitch about how he had to surf, and then he would interject ad hominem grumblings about the stuff he saw and the 20 seconds of staying on each program. He was constantly editorializing, a non stop ad. If Oprah Winfrey is so inspirational, why doesn't she inspire people to turn off her show and go do something? If she were any good at this motivation racket, her ratings would be in the (laughs) He had a point. I must confess, I also secretly liked it when dad was in the hospital too. When he was, I timed my daily visits for 3 p.m. That was the time that Jeopardy! was on locally. I would climb into bed with him, he would rub my hand, and we'd watch. Watching Jeopardy! together was a ritual I started in college when I tried to find a way to avoid talking politics with him. He was endlessly frustrated at my liberalism, and I thought his Reaganitis was, well, acute. (laughs) Our common ground was Jeopardy! We sat and watched the show, and for 30 minutes we screamed at the TV, not at each other. By showing off our general knowledge prowess, we proved to each other that even though we disagreed on fundamental life philosophies, somehow shouting, what is the Sudetenland, simultaneously, and being correct, meant that neither one could call the other stupid. It was a perfect detente. But it left me perplexed. When he beat me at Jeopardy, I always thought to myself, he hates idiots. How can he know so much stuff and still like Reagan? (laughs) When I won, he tossed one of his many theories about how I turned out the way I did. In my early 20s, he blamed it on me being brainwashed by the bearded women's libbers who taught man-hating 101. As I got older, we started fighting about issues like the Iran-Contra affair in the first Gulf War, and that's when he added a new theory. Maybe you're the way you are because you were conceived the night Kennedy won the election. <laughs> I like that one. I counted back nine months, and it was totally plausible. I had no idea. How cool. But then I foolishly asked, Dad, how do you know that? how can you be sure that was the night I was conceived? I just know. I didn't need any more details. (laughs) But it was when my comedy turned more political that he had the aha moment that made the most sense to both of us because it was a combination of one of his twisted truths with our shared sense of humor. Spook. He called all of us kids Spook. I had no idea it was a bad word until I saw Archie Bunker use it. (laughs) Spook, I screwed up. I raised you to have an opinion, and I forgot to tell you it was supposed to be mine. (laughs) (laughs) He said this quite a bit. It was his way he called Uncle, and no matter who seemed to have the upper hand in the fight, it always made us laugh. And it helped me to see that even though we fought bitterly, he loved the fact that he instilled the fight in me. He was proud I had an opinion, and he baited me to show me, because when I was at my most passionate, he could see himself in me the most. And the more political I got, the more I saw it too. But it wasn't until I overheard him on the phone one day that I had my own aha moment and realized how proud I am of being so much like him and how I had an obligation to live up to who he was. I was in Minneapolis booked to perform a fundraiser for a local pro choice organization. In 1999, my folks had moved into one of those senior high rises in Bloomington, Minnesota, a city just 15 minutes from downtown Minneapolis. It was one of those sweet senior high rises that had a party room nobody partied in, a sun porch nobody sunned in, an exercise room nobody exercised in. I called it Club Medicare. (laughs) Or Club Meds for short I always stayed at Club Meds when I visited And I always slept in my dad's bed Because he slept in the recliner in the den When I stayed with my folks I usually woke up at about 7am It was an alarm that was my mom Laying in bed next to me Saying the rosary while simultaneously Doing her leg exercises Oh, I Sorry, did I wake you? <laughs> she walked the whole building. But this morning was different. I woke up to the deafening power of a pair of eyes staring at me. As I opened one eye, Mom was standing over me, holding the local paper open to an ad for the event I was performing at. She had something to say and I think had about two hours to say it. (laughs) Why do you have to advertise your abortion deal? (laughs) So we can raise money to pay for abortions? No, to pay for ways to torture you. (laughs) Whatever's left over goes for abortion. You don't get it, do you, young lady? <laughs> you don't get me, do you, Mom? It was one of our typical aggressive-aggressive exchanges on the subject. <laughs> we stopped talking. She went into the TV room, and I needed to get out of the house. Every time I spoke out publicly on the subject of abortion, I knew my parents died a little inside. They didn't hide it. They knew I had an abortion in high school. I got pregnant the first time I ever had sex. The incident, as my mother always called it, if she had it her way, would have been an experience that was a private family matter, never to be spoken of again, something that would have been an endless source of self-evaluation that solidified in my devotion to Catholicism. (laughs) I went in a different direction. (laughs) So I tossed on some clothes and harromped into the TV room. Mom and Dad were doing something, ignoring me, something on the web TV probably forwarding joke emails to me so I would have that to look forward to when I got back. I'm just going to Starbucks to pick up the New York Times and I'll be back in a Well, This jarred my dad into a brief tirade. For what? The New York Times is an Israeli-occupied territory. They should just print the Jerusalem school lunch menu in it while they're at it. They already do, Dad. I got to Starbucks too late. The Times was sold out. I could just hear my dad's voice in my head. I guess all the Jews were up earlier than you again. When I left the house, I left my purse on the counter. I had no choice but to go home to the thick stench of regret. I sulked back down the hallway to the apartment. As I opened the door, I heard Dad on the phone. He was really angry. One of those angers that we could actually hear the red in his face.
9: Who is this?
8: Oh, you're not gonna tell me your name? Well, let me tell you something. To call here and accuse my daughter of being a baby killer and then not tell me your name, you're as cowardly <laughs> At least my daughter says what she thinks and she doesn't hide who she is. I'm proud I raised a daughter with some balls. <laughs> go to hell. (laughs) And then I heard him angrily struggling to get the phone on the receiver. I took a breath before I walked back into the TV room, and and before I could say anything, my mom made the first move in our ongoing game of, well, let's pretend this never happened. You forgot your purse. I made you some coffee. It's not Starbanks, I know, but I made it. (laughs) I kissed you on the forehead and then with great hesitation asked, Who was that on the phone? I don't know. Just some broad who saw the ad for your incident show deal. (laughs) She just started yelling crap and wouldn't tell me who she was, so I hung up. Then he just looked at me and took a hit of the medicine from his asthma pipe and pushed himself all the way back into full recline and said, Spook, I raised you to have an opinion. Why didn't I tell you it was supposed to be mine?
1: <laughs> this Wednesday. It's a great book, and and there's a lot of wonderful, sweet stories about your parents in it. We don't have a lot of time to talk, and I really would love for you to tell a sort of a a shortened version of the uh, You Against the Movie Screen story that we mentioned.
8: (laughs) Oh, okay. shortened to the point, it was a gig at this big rock club. It was the finals of the biggest air guitar contest in 1984. And I was the host. And I had on a, like, a vintage wedding dress that was piles and piles and piles of fabric. It was dead August. The air conditioning was out in the club. It was 5,000 degrees in the club. I'm totally nervous, I, but I'm like, I am going to make this happen, and so I am going to just go commando under this dress. What could happen? <laughs> So I'm standing on stage, and behind me is a massive video screen where the acts await to be introduced. And the screen rolls up as I'm introducing the first act. And as it rolls up, the dress rolls up right along with me, lifting me three inches off the ground and splitting me in the front. And it just stops. And I'm hanging with my 1980s girly garden, like giant staring at everyone. And I have a choice at that very moment to let everyone know that that is who I am and to have that emblazoned into my head, or at least to have that emblazoned into their head and adding some kind of jokes to it. So it was like, I just was remembered the movie Carrie, and I was like, well, at least a bucket of pig's blood didn't pour on my head, to which the audience laughed. And then I said, at least you can't see my dirty pillows, right? To which the audience laughed again. And then I was pretty much out of jokes, but I heard a guy in the audience go, I think she planned this whole thing. <laughs> and I was like, yes, sir, that is correct. That is correct, I planned it. And, and basically it was like, had I just sat there, I would have just been mortified and never been able to set foot on stage again. But the fact that I just kept telling jokes, at least my big vagina was not the only thing that was the take-home. They got some jokes and I continued on. And now nothing you can do could hurt
1: me. Right? Well, and, it, you know, it was also a great lesson, you know? I mean, it yes. really was a great lesson in, like, sort of learning to, to go with the flow, so to speak.
8: You know, people don't remember the lessons of 9-11. They're not going to remember my stupid 80s guga, you know?
1: So, um, okay. <laughs> You'd be surprised. Um. LAUGHTER The book is Liz Free or Die. The author is Liz Winstead. Thanks so much for joining us, Liz. Thanks, you guys. Thank you. Was brought to you in part by whole foods markets reminding you that summer is a great time to start eating healthier and the whole foods health starts here label can help with the four pillars whole unprocessed foods a plant strong diet healthy fats and foods rich in micronutrients wherever you are health starts here more information can be found at wholefoodsmarket.com we'll be right back Time for some teeny tiny tales, some Lilliputian literature. It's time for Livewire's flash fiction. Tonight, our audience has been given the Herculean task of writing an entire story in just six words based on a prompt. Tonight, in honor of Liz Winstead, our prompt is My Life Story. And now, members of Faces for Radio Theater will read their favorites with help from part time neurologist and paleontology hobbyist Ralph Huntley. And now, Flash Fiction.
4: Dad's first comment. It has hair. That was from the very funny Dylan. Thank you, Dylan.
5: Two's my limit. For everything. Seriously. (laughs) Thanks, Toril.
6: Larry writes, Born bald. I will die bald.
4: (laughs) Brian Weaver writes Punched by Enya. Can't get worse.
1: Great job, audience, on Flash Fiction. Flash Fiction was brought to you tonight, as always, by New Belgium Brewing Company. This month featuring their Shift Pale Lager, a beer as a reward for a job well done, crafted by New Belgium's employee owners. For an end-of-shift beer you can have at the end of any shift. Work or PlayStation or napping, the list is endless. Thanks, New Belgium. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Casey Anderson.
2: Everybody's been drinking since noon Laughing and hollering and picking out tunes for when you were outside throwing rocks at the moon I was getting high in the locked bathroom Cause there ain't no pension in my profession And all my life still a natural regression The lane ain't close, I got a confession I've been feeling well some depression Where well, you used to go to rally Back in the day Now it's also once a year when you need to get away Got Tweety and Farrar on Vanity Plates Driving your Prius down the lost highway Down to California, down to Joshua Tree To feel Graham's ghost on the desert breeze And then back to Rue Roo- a little weed it's a pretty good story but it don't impress me so ain't no pension in my profession and all my life's been a natural regression lane and close i got a confession i've been dealing with some depression where well, you seen Steve Hurl 47 times And you can play Sunday on your J45 But you don't care much for those communist lies You'd still be voting Reagan if the f***er had time You know, talk about whiskey Rambling in the dark for black-haired girls breaking our man's heart. You got a dog named Willie in your backyard I got a couple cigarettes and a library card there ain't no pension in my profession And all my life's been a natural regression Plain and close I got a confession I've been dealing with some depression depression so pick up a bottle and pass it around and tell another story about the time you met town To put on loretta but turn up the sound cause i'll be in the alley singing all shook down there ain't no pension in my profession and all my life's been a natural regression Laying ain't close i got a confession I've been oh, I've been dealing with, yeah, I've been dealing with some depression But if I die and go to hell and hope nobody listens to old 97 The Honkies.
1: Casey Anderson and the Honkies. And now, as promised, the man who has been writing this whole hour while we have been doing nothing, really, to sum it all up for us, please welcome poet Scott Poole.
9: tonight by Scott Poole. I learned tonight that no one wants to talk to you when they're in line to the restroom. (laughs) Especially if it's on a cramped airplane and your nose is whistling. But at the same time, it seems like the perfect place to try out your commencement speech on the 80-year-old woman in front of you, even though you haven't been invited to give a commencement speech. It's always good to have an opinion at the ready, just to make sure it's that of the 80-year-old in front of you. As the line slowly moves forward, just start dispensing advice. Like, for instance, I don't know, don't practice trampoline gymnastics on the Golden Gate Bridge. You might just be jumping for fun, but if an accident happens, not only will you die, but the person you were last hanging out with has the power to tell people if you killed yourself or not. So if you're not nice to people while you're practicing trampoline on a high bridge, your legend might be permanently damaged by a small person who looks and smells like an Ewok. So you better make sure the person next to you is trustworthy. And there's only one way to be sure. Ask them if they like Star Wars. If they're wearing a Chewbacca hoodie, then you're safe. If you do accidentally bounce to your death, the person will instead try to save your honor by telling a creative story that no one understands. Yeah, dude, he wasn't trying to kill himself. He was um, trying to incorporate a drawing of Han Solo into a high metal bridge beam you can only get to by bouncing very high. You know how Solo looked when he was holding the beam in the trash compactor and Luke was yelling into the lipstick case and he was attempting a real artistic statement up there because he was trying to show what would have happened if 3PO hadn't stopped the compactor and they had all been pooped out the back of a Star Destroyer like an astral fruitcake eaten by the universe. End of series. A Star Wars fan can always be trusted to keep the important details of your death a complete mystery. And make sure you save some toilet paper for the next guy. Thank you.
1: Scott Poole, that's our show for tonight. Thank you so much for listening. Our thanks to our guests tonight, Mike Russell, Liz Winstead, and Casey Anderson and the Honkies. The Mutton shops are Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and Paul Brainerd, now featuring their new record of 99 songs of 30 seconds or less at mchops.com. Tonight's show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, and Burgerville, featuring Burgerville Radio, music from Northwest musicians in all their restaurants. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art. The James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation and listeners like you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is produced by Courtney Homeister and Jim Brunberg. The faces for radio theater are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Homeister performers Andrew Harris and Tricia Ferguson, director Jason Rouse, and master of sound David Ian. Additional show writers are Jason Rouse and house poet Scott Poole, with guest writer Ben Coleman. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom with house sound by Scott McLeod. Stage management by Graham Nystrom. Thank you to Rose City Sound. Show theme by Courtney Vondrele and Ralph Huntley. Our show photographer is Jenny Baker. LiveWire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about LiveWire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit LiveWireRadio.org or find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio.
0: Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of LiveWire delivered?